so much of high performance is about elimination, simplification, automating things so that you just know that you're on the right path. For those that are trying to find balance and trying to have it all is get really clear on what do I care about and freakishly, continually eliminate and assess, am yeah. I moving towards those or is there more things I need to delegate or get out of my, my path, right? Hello, everybody. Welcome back or welcome to the Live on Bone podcast, Conversations Without Limits. This podcast is for people who would like to listen to real, open, honest, and courageous conversations. It's all about human potential and performance and exploring the edges of what we are capable of. I'm your host, Steve McDonald, and by trading training, a high performance and transformational coach to leaders and teams all over the world. Today, I'm super honored to share a conversation I had with a friend of mine, Dr. Brent Hogarth. Brent is a licensed clinical psychologist and an executive flow coach, and he's on a mission to help solve the mental health crisis through flow state and peak experiences. On this episode, Brent and I talk about how we can develop an internal locus of control for greater life satisfaction and well-being, and tap into flow states for peak performance and ultimately sustained well-being. We also talk about what to do if you feel out of control and life is happening to you, doing versus being, how you can be present and feel a sense of wholeness, exercises you can do today to identify your values which guide you to more impactful life and ways to bring flow into your life so there's order in your day. We explore a lot of other things, we had a great chat and I hope you enjoy it so feel free to reach out in the comments and let us know if you have any questions and yeah enjoy i'm very curious about you know where you've come from in your your earlier days and the context of of all of that so i'd love if you could take us kind of right back and to tell us tell us the story of brent and you know where who you who you are where you've come from and, and how you've gotten to where you are right now and i know it's very broad but let's let's give it a go sure thanks Stephen. uh so yeah, I grew up here in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. I grew up in a, on the mountainside, you know, as a kid, uh, my mom pulling us out of school to, to go skiing in the local mountains when there's good snow. I had two older brothers and we we're all gymnasts. So my, my right. parents are both entrepreneurs. So every day we were, you know, training in gymnastics. And at one point, uh, I was on the BC provincial team. So it's quite a serious kind of pursuit at a very young age. And, and I certainly think that gymnastics uh, gave me the confidence to, you know, learn how to push my boundaries, you know, learn how mm-hmm. to take action towards fear and really taught me how to find flow at, at a young age. And so I was a gymnast, uh, basketball player, rugby player, really an, an athlete as a young kid. I was mm. very fortunate that while I didn't excel in academics, my mom always said, yeah, but how is he doing in physical education? How is he doing in, in art? <laughs> so my, yeah. My, yeah, my strengths really got to be kind of nourished in that way. Um, but, but in high school, I kind of went through this phase. I wouldn't really say this phase, this evolution maybe where – you know, I was a, a big graffiti artist, so I was painting trains. Really? I was climbing, yeah, I was, Jeez, I was, painting, I was mm. climbing, climbing fences. You know, painting trains. I was climbing billboards, painting billboards. I was doing some legal work on barber shops or whatnot, but that was kind of the culture I was in. And you know, uh, you know, it's a culture of, you know, 
of hip hop where you're listening, mm -hmm. you're break dancing, you're listening to hip hop, you're, you know, you're working on your craft as an artist mm -hmm. and it's really, you're kind of in your kind of group and your click and you're trying to actualize your skill as a, you know, a player in that, in that sport. Mm -hmm. And so that was, uh, you know, a time in my life where I kind of dropped some sports and really kind of cultivated my passion for, for sports and, or for arts and, uh with that culture came with you know a lot of you know young age drinking uh partying yeah, yeah. and, yeah. and, and, and yeah. things that kind of got me into a lot of trouble so i uh was actually kind of from a young you know 15 16 in and out of court and kind of had a multiple kind of disputes uh for fights that i was getting into and was eventually sent even to military school for grade 12 so i kind of really got pulled out of my context my yeah. culture that i built here in vancouver and uh went on a completely different path in my life you know i was in mm. the military structure very strict high discipline um and from that moment you know i excelled for the first time academically went to university but it was interesting because while i excelled academically in the military context i realized that as soon as I left military, some of those old patterns were kind of coming back in. And so I, I think I learned at that age how external reinforcement can work very well. But if we don't have that internal locus of control, yeah. really that internal yeah. self-discipline, you know, yeah. we're not going to be able to get far in life. And That's so a huge one, that huge one Brent, yeah. Very important. Like, and yeah. It's true in your work, you know, big time in that the internal locus of control, you definitely are role modeling, you role model that, that control, right? That, that self, um, self-awareness and self-regulation, you know, and, and all of that. Like, so just want to call that out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, uh, we learn it, we all learn it in our own way <laughs> or else we're a leaf in the wind. And so, yeah. So since uh, military school and graduate, I went to India and that was the first time I really got exposed to spirituality, religion. I lived in a Buddhist monastery there. And it was at that point, Stephen, that kind of a really life-changing mm -hmm. moment happened for me where I felt like I was on this journey to find self-acceptance for kind of some of the things I'd done in the past. And in meditation, I realized that that part of me I was trying to accept again, to kind of forgive was really like this thought. It was this belief. It was this this ego, essentially. And once I kind of, in meditation, created space between me as the observer of the ego and yeah. the ego itself, uh, I felt like that journey in some regard of self-acceptance was somewhat over because I was no longer identifying with this part of this story, this narrative yeah. of who I was. And that, and that gave me the freedom to kind of choose how else do I want to live my life now and and what values are important to me now and, and how can I move towards them and funny enough as we go through you know the conversation today as me as a psychologist that's really what my work is helping people find out what's important to them and simply to move in in that direction yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. you know and, and and helping them disentangle from the rules, the language, the story that has them acting in a different way that we all suffer from. And I certainly do as well. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my story that led me eventually into graduate school and uh, uh, yeah. becoming a psychologist. Brilliant. Thanks for sharing that, Brent. I should, yeah. I was going to stop you about 10 times along the way, but if you were in flow <laughs> and I can call it flow state. Um, why, why did you go to India? So 
What like can you tell me about yeah. the time like that that decision you made? You booked a ticket and you went because you did go alone, you know, and you did again. It's not Vancouver; it's it's India, and it's something that it, <laughs> it, a strong decision needs to be made. So, what, can you tell me about that time? You know what what was going through your sure. mindset? Yeah, so I'm 36 now. So that was probably when I was 21. Uh, so you know, 15 years ago, you know, going to India, doing a yoga teacher training course, those type of things weren't as kind of popular at that at that time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and and so you know, I do kind of look back on my younger self and kind of have some sense of pride that he took that that journey. Yeah. Um, you know, like all of us, you know, change often is sparked by pain. And it was uh, the end of a relationship with my college kind of sweetheart and kind of ended in a way that I wasn't proud of. Wasn't Again, I, I felt some disappointment in myself. And, and so I, I picked up, actually, my mom gifted me a Wayne Dyer book. It was uh, Dyer, Seven yeah. Secrets. Yeah. yeah seven change secrets. your thoughts, change your life. Yeah. And all his erroneous yeah. zones. Yeah. Great, 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 um, great, great wisdom in, in, that, in those teachings. Yeah. Absolutely. It was a tiny little book. It was like seven secrets to inner peace and wisdom. And it was like, you know, it was full with a bunch of, you know, beautiful roomy quotes and half it. It was the first time it kind of got me interested in spirituality. And then I went to a Deepak Chopra retreat right after Mm. that. This is right after graduation uh, in Bank in Whistler. It was his seduction of spirit program. And then that was the first time I really learned about, uh, you know, Vedanta, so uh, yoga philosophy, about meditation, about non non duality. I learned a little bit about that in sports psychology and philosophy of sport, but not too mm-hmm. much. And so, right after that kind of retreat, I I packed my bags and went to India. And um, all I had was, uh, you know, one of those Lonely Planet guidebooks. Yeah. And I really, ch- yeah, I I landed in Delhi, which was absolute chaos and <laughs> went went straight up to this place called rishikesh which is considered kind of like the yoga capital of the world it's where the beatles stayed mm. at uh, maharishi yogi's uh ashram mm. and i spent some time you know practicing yoga i remember they have the ganga uh, river there so dunking in that river is oh, kind of a fir- first first cleanse and then i yeah i traveled all over northern india on trains public transportation and you're on your own rent the whole way man and all, like... all all alone yeah all alone and and you know i spent most of my time in a place called mcleod ganj in a province called dharmsala it's where the dalai Lama lives and they have a meditation center called tushita there and i did their introduction to buddhism course there for a few weeks and then I did a month-long yoga teacher training course right on the Himalayan mountains there. And yeah, that that was uh, kind of gave me the foundation that's, uh, yeah, that led me to psychology. I remember my mm. Buddhist nun kept saying, you know, Buddha is just a psychologist. Like, this is just psychology, people. This is cognitive behavioral therapy. And when I kept hearing that message, and she was so, such an empowering speaker, she, she said essentially the message of Buddha is that we are the boss right to come back to internal locus of control mm. like you we have control of you know what we're focusing on what we're paying attention to what we're actualizing in our life and that was yeah it uh so that was kind of the path again that, that mm. led me to india very interesting um Brent. and i think it just like the question i have right and i have two questions i suppose i'll, I'll ask this question and then i'd circle back to the internal locus of control so how long were you in india brent what was the 
about uh, five or six months. Yeah. Six months. So that 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 time that you went over there was so significant. Did you get? Did you did you do it again? Did you do some sort of a kind of um, you know, a, a trip like that or something even at a micro level? I uh, since I guess it was fifteen years. Did you kind of? Go back to it or yeah. just kind of use what you've learned there and kind of bring that back into your life and like tell me more. Yeah. So I, after that, uh, about a year later, I entered graduate school in San Francisco. So it was a master's in sports psychology that linked into a doctorate in clinical psych. And after I did the one year in the sports psych program, you know, for me, and I think for all of us, we learn the best through experience. And I felt like, you know, reading textbooks and taking tests was teaching me some, but I wasn't getting the full experiential yeah. learning. So I actually deferred entering the doctoral program and went back to Nepal this time Sweet. and lived in, yeah, lived in another mm. monastery for about two months there and really kind of. Yeah, continued to study what's called the Lam Rim. That's the Mahayana tradition of Buddhism. Uh, and so that was my kind of longer stay. And at the end of that, I, I still had the desire to return back into formal education and study mm -hmm. mindfulness uh, from a neuroscience and psychological perspective and from the Western view. Mm -hmm. um, but that was the, the second time I really went back there. And then, you know, I try to make those trips as much as possible, Stephen, even in my day-to-day -day life, right? Like through visualization, yeah. through meditation, through little rituals to try to return to that, just that, that psychological state, right? I don't mm -hmm. need to be there, but I can return to yes. those lessons, that sense of kind of freedom or surrender or presence. Uh, I need to do it more and more in this mm -hmm. world and, you know, but, uh, yeah, that was a big, yeah. big time I went back. Yeah, that's brilliant. Brent, really um, inspirational. So like the internal locus of control. Can you tell, can you explain what what that is, Brent? And let's explore that a little bit. I think there's a huge, um, I think huge wisdom in there that we might be able to unpack a little bit more and people might learn. Yeah, I think a good way to think about internal locus of control is from a theory called self-determination theory by Ryan and Desi. And this is really one of the theories in sports psychology that underpins motivation, um, but also flow state. And, mm -hmm. you know, really pulling on that human need for a sense of autonomy. And when we are internally driven, when we have internal intrinsic motivation and feel like we are self-determined, we get more engaged in life, right? It's yeah. uh you know, when we're driving the car, we pay attention, we're present, we're focused, we're finding flow versus when we feel like there's an external locus of control and life is happening to us, then life becomes a threat. Yeah. Life becomes an, an, an obstacle, not something that we have an opportunity to, to forge or to, you know, create our own path. And um, I think we all know that, you know, when we feel like we're living life on our own terms, uh, and, and forging our own kind of journey forward, uh, we are more engaged. We are more enthusiastic. Yeah. And um, so that's really the difference. Again, when, when we're, I feel like life is extrinsic or we have an extrinsic locus of control. Life is happening to us as opposed to work and I'm we're, driving. We're creating our own life. Yeah. Yeah. So if I'm listening in, no rent, and I'm somebody that feels like life is happening to me, you know, and I'm really struggling with that. And, yeah, you know, there could be multiple examples of that. It could be in work that I don't like and that 
there's many challenges in the workplace and there's so many sort of corporate world of putting so much demands on what we have to deliver. And just, you know, there could be other aspects of that as well. It could be, you're just, you know, sport. Like, I mean, whatever the example is, the example is, I suppose, the, the I suppose I'd love for, for you to be able to share maybe some, something that will help people that might be feeling like that, you know? I think it's important for us to all recognize that, you know, we come by perceiving that the world is happening to us very honestly and naturally because from infants, you know, we aren't in control. People are kind of riding our ship and and guiding us and protecting us. And so, you know, it's a first, just a, a place of acceptance, like a sense of openness to the reality that this is happening, right? Again, why we suffer in life is because we follow these rules, let's say like the world is happening to us um, unconsciously. And, and it, as a result, we kind of, we end up living a life that creates, uh, that forces us to avoid confronting that reality because it's painful mm-hmm. to, to recognize, yeah. you know what, actually I'm not driven by others. And, and, and so our life becomes kind of smaller and smaller to protect us from that truth. So I would say first, Becoming open to the reality that at times we can be driven by by con- unconscious rules, you know, things that have typically worked of letting go of our internal locus of control, and then becoming aware of the ways that we do actually exert, you know, our intentional volition. So whether it's taking it very small, Stephen, and just focusing on our breath, like let me just practice being having a sense of internal locus of yeah. control through focusing and, and slowing and deeping my breath right here, right, right now. Mm. And then it's build, yeah. building on small little things in our life where essentially we're building little rituals where, again, we're present and we have kind of what we call psychological flexibility. So the ability to have these narratives and stories in our life, but still move towards what we value. And I think that's kind of the next point with that's brilliant, developing internal locus of control is figure out like, what do we actually care about yeah, yeah, and yeah. making, make, making sure we're moving in 100%. that direction. And, and so there's a lot of metaphors that I use as a, as a therapist uh, to help people kind of become you know, present. And so one, one that might be helpful is to, to think about like a struggle switch is a good one. So in our life, when we're, when we're engaging in something that is difficult and challenging, it can feel like a struggle. And at times we make this, let's say anxiety, even more difficult by turning on this struggle switch. And now we're struggling with the anxiety. So <laughs> now it's stickier and now yeah. maybe it leads to depression. And now we're struggling with depression and, and now it's maybe guilt or shame. And, and so what can we do in those moments when these emotions and these this language, these rules are kind of compounding is just turn off the fucking struggle switch. Just yeah. allow it to be there, be open and willing to experience the, the anxiety at the root of it. And then through that, refocus on what is actually important to me now. And take small behavioral action towards that. And, and I think the best way to kind of counteract a, a feeling of an external locus of control is, again, just taking small actions that reinforce uh, the opposite is true, right? Whether it's yeah. through our breath, whether it's through, you know, moving in a direction of something we care and we love. And, and so 
those are those are a few things that I would kind of highlight. You know, another good a good Brent and definitely um you know just from our work together I suppose and yeah something that has really resonated was that values driven moving towards your values you know when you want to make a decision when when you have that external locus of control and influence it's coming back to it's coming back to who you are and your character and and you know living from that place and moving towards those values and letting those values guide the the thoughts you're having the actions you take and um the struggles which is very good as well you know obviously you might feel um guilty or you might feel sad about something and then you feel sad because you feel sad you feel you're, you're angry because you feel a certain way and that's the struggle switch just 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 taking you further further into your head what's that phrase you use bring into your into your uh, come over your head and into your yeah. life right is that the one yes yeah yeah we yeah so essentially like you know the, these rules help us develop self-control and, and one way they do that is to help us avoid emotions but the problem is when we gain control of our emotions we often lose control of our life Right. When we gain control of our emotions by suppressing them, eliminating them, uh, it can feel comfortable, but we end up not moving towards the things we care about in life because the things we care about in life often have associated with them pain yeah, or discomfort yeah. or, or whatnot. So, yeah, we often get into our head and out of our life. Yeah, so it's not about and, and, yeah, it's not about controlling emo, emotions. It's not about controlling emotions, Brent. It's about accepting them, but detaching from them, right? So it's kind of acceptance plus non-attachment is that am i kind of yeah 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 so th- let's 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 kind of go down on this this rabbit hole and i'll try to make it as clear as possible so it's interesting to think that control is actually the problem not the solution okay so when it comes to our internal world when we try to apply this rule of using control to you know avoid sadness or fear or whatnot it's actually the problem, not the solution. And unfortunately, mo- in most areas in our life, especially in our external life, control works very well, right? You have a flat tire, you fix a flat tire, you're back on the road. So control in the external world to find freedom really works. So it becomes a rule that we like to follow. But when we try to apply that in our internal world and try to control or avoid our internal experience, yeah. whether it's thoughts, feelings, sensations, it again gets us more caught up into our head and unable to be present with the world around us, aware of whatever our values we can move towards and, and kind of cause us emotional avoidance, uh, behavioral avoidance. And the opposite is we want to be engaged, right? We want to be yeah. finding flow taking action towards those things, even though they're just uncomfortable or painful yeah, or yeah. you know whatever it may be. Yeah. So then that ties back into like, again, low state, right? Optimal state of being, right? When you're absolutely, totally immersed in what you're doing and you're doing it at an absolute exceptional level that your thinking brain could never actually do that, whether it's on a sport field, engaged in your work that you have, that you're literally doing something that would take two hours usually but you're doing it in five minutes like so it's just that state of absolutely you know peak experience in life and um everything you're saying there about internal control and um turning off the struggle switch moving towards value they're all nearly you know as it's and i know we use this term a lot when it comes to flow flow triggers but kind of in itself they're kind of prerequisites to to drop into that state and obviously there's more have a lot more to it than that but they're definitely um keys to you being your best big time um, Brent, a question. Absolutely. A question, Brent. I suppose. Uh, so, still staying. We're still staying where we are right now. Do you have any personal example that you could share with us, where 
your external locus control was on fire and there was a real struggle going on, but you overcame like an adversity situation, a crucible moment where you kind of stepped beyond or kind of really, you know, came through and, mm-hmm. and those those things you shared with us were, were kind of strongholds in that process. Yeah, you know, it's a I have a, a recent example. Um so my fiance and I uh, were, and you, I think you know about this, Stephen, we mm-hmm. were about five or six months pregnant. And unfortunately, our baby, uh, through genetic testing and uh, found out that it had a condition that it wouldn't survive. And, and so obviously, it felt as though, um, you know, we didn't have a sense of control there. And it was challenging, suffering was, uh, was present. Um, wanting to avoid wishing things weren't that way. Um, but in, in that kind of chaos, there was an opportunity for my fiance and I to, again, uh, move towards what we care about, which is each other, which is appreciation for life. Uh, and those kind of, when we started taking actions through that, and, and that started off really for us is becoming vocal about kind of having to have an abortion at six months mm. is a very difficult thing to mm. speak about. Um, and kind of, we are as sick as our secret. So kind mm. of exposing that secret, being vulnerable, you know, helped us, even though we were suffering, uh, create a sense of meaning in that suffering. And I think that's the big, the big kind of takeaway is that when we're moving towards our values, even if we are going through fucking hell, mm. there's a, there's a sense of willingness to burden that, that that suffering, mm. that cross, that the the challenge, whatever, however we want to think about it, mm. and that 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 was a good example. I'd say that you know, even though we were disappointed, saddened, um, yeah, very very, I don't know what can you say. We were um, yeah. yeah disheartened. There was we came out of that closer together than we've ever bef- been before, yeah. and more grateful for for life. So you know, if we would have stayed in an external locus of control, we would say saying, you know, why did this happen to us? You know, and, yeah. and maybe we would avoid, avoid trying to have a baby again because it could bring out this suffering again. Yeah. Right. But uh, having kind of turning off that struggle switch and welcoming those thoughts or those feelings along the journey moving forward and, and knowing that they don't control the direction we move, uh, we consciously do in our, you know, as we choose our values that that kind of freed us up in some ways. Brent, thanks for sharing, man. And I just want to acknowledge you for doing that. And look, exceptional character and, um, you know, absolutely the way you share there and, and, and how it has helped and how you've helped yourself and how you've, how, I suppose, how the journey you've been on in life has, I suppose, enabled you to step through this really, really sad and challenging period to, um, to move towards something meaningful and move towards something, you know, that goes beyond all of this. And uh, just want to acknowledge that, Brent. And I suppose the question I have is kind of, you know, how how has this changed, or has this changed you, Brent, or has this transformed you in any subtle way? You know, this all this experience yeah. that you've had. Yeah, you know, it. Uh, I appreciate you kind of, uh, you know, your your statements, Stephen. And I would say, fuck. At the end of the day, I I think the most important value we all have is being authentic. Right. I think the, the most suffering I've had in my life is when I realized I've been acting in a way that's not in alignment yeah. with, with who I am. And that's when I really feel a sense of chaos. When I really don't feel in flow is when I'm doing something that is not actually who I, I aspire to be or feel like I am. And so 
you know, there's, I think that's kind of what's changed me is, is it just reinforced that, that message. And it's also taught me that, you know, you know that you're with the right partner when these type of things bring you closer together as opposed yeah, to further apart. And I think that's something that, you know, a lot of us struggle with, you know, you know, before we really settle down is knowing how do we, how are we with the right partner? And I think that if the struggles, the challenges bring you closer together, as opposed to wedging you further apart, that's a, a one hell of a great way to figure that <laughs> out. So I think, yeah. I think that's been a big change. It's feeling just like a great sense of confidence that, through the challenges, uh, we've become closer together, and, and that's given me, you know, a sense of internal locus of control, so to speak. That you know, we can make it through anything here. Yeah. Thanks so much, Brent, and I really, really wish yourself and your partner all all the best with with life and a, you know, strong vibes that you'll be exceptional parents when the time comes. You know, so really, really, I'm um, glad you shared that and, and excited for for what's ahead for you, for you both. Um, Thank you, Brent. If I circle back to that authentic, because that, that phrase being authentic to who you are, you know, because I suppose the question is, who are you, you know? So even Brent, if I asked you the question, who's Brent? Who's Brent Hogarth? Well, like, what's your answer to that? What's your answer to that now? 25 words or less. If you, <laughs> put you on the spot. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it maybe an easier way out. I would say, you know, that I, I am, you know, I, I, when I was in the yoga philosophy, Stephen, and, and studying the Vedanta and recognizing that I am just pure awareness, just a witnessing uh, consciousness, that gives me kind of a sense of infinite possibilities to how I want to live and, and choose my life. And kind of pulling back from identifying with any specific thing, even as a psychologist, a Canadian, anything, just identifying with awareness spirit, however we want to call it, that's, uh, mm. that's who I think is most healthy for me to be so that, you know, and no matter what shows up in my life, the good, the bad, I can still feel a sense of wholeness in that I can be present and aware, right? Like if I identify with myself as my body and I lose my arm, that's a, that's, I've lost a part of myself. Yeah. If I identify with myself as, as my job, as a psychologist and something happens with that role, uh, you know, I'll, I'll lose my sense of identity or as a father, whatever it might be. And so just for me, the most functional identity to kind of connect with is, is awareness is the sense of, of I am. And, yeah, and from that, it gives me the opportunity to, to, you know, to thrive in, in no matter what situation. Again, it's not easy to stay connected to that identity. It's very easy to get connected to all the other roles that I play yeah, in life. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. That, that's the best one. I think for me, if I were to, yeah, really be on top of it. Unbelievable. Incredible answer, Brent, to be fair. Uh, you know, it's, it's again, outstanding and I suppose it's something we're striving towards, right? So it's kind of, of course I can imagine it's easy to get pulled and dry. Like as you were speaking, I was thinking about all the different roles that I play, father, um, athlete, captain, coach, you know, a friend. So, you know, and, and when you do bad in one, when you're a bad friend, when you're, when you, you know, when you don't play a good game, I suppose, and all of these things break down, even just one subtle thing breaks down, then it can just, you know, as you can imagine, and as you know, it it leads, it changes your state and it can, I can control you then, right? And that's that external kind of control that we talked about earlier, right? Is that fair enough, Brent? Is that kind of when you get to, when you get yeah. attached with identity and roles and your, your being is associated with that going well or bad, you know, it just, it, it's not a good place to be. 
so it's coming back to that right so it's yeah yeah and and it and there's a there's a fundamental shift right between these the the roles that we've been talking about in this sense of kind of non-duality or or i am this or, or presence is that yeah. in the roles in those roles we're we're doing right yeah we're doing things as a father, we're doing things as a captain, as an athlete. And so it's a goal-driven mentality. And, and goal, being goal-driven is extremely beneficial. It's when we find flow, it's how we achieve. It's a big part of life. But, you know, there's another side of life, and that's just the ability to simply be, right? To be in the chaos and still feel a sense of wholeness, which, you know, a lot of people in the corporate space, they have a hard time shutting off because yeah, their their sense of identity is so tied to their achievement. And for good reasons, again, it's a rule that works in a lot of contexts, but it's a rule that doesn't always work. And, and, and so that's really the edge that, you know, I think, you know, I work on, I'm sure you work on with yeah. clients is like, how do we, how do we reinforce and support the doing, the complete engagement and achieving goals and task engagement, but also being able to shut shut off, be fully present, rest and recover and, and feel a sense of wholeness in life so that we're not kind of doing from a place of, of emptiness, of a place of, 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 of needing to fulfill some sort of deficiency we're perceiving in ourselves. And, mm. and so that's kind of, we're getting to a crux of something I think really important here. Yes. So again, as you talk, Brent, I've, I'm starting to I visualize and I see different people I work with, different teams I work with. And, you know, some leaders, they might have an identity of being a really strong leader that leads out of fear, you know, and, and you know, you work with them to, you know, work within that space and their identity as a, as a fear-based leader leads them to kind of take a lot of decisive or forceful demanding. They just seek that out, right? They seek opportunities to be that, even though it's not the right thing to do. And it's where they're comfortable, right? It's where they're safe. Um, so know, think, so, so, so yeah. let, let, let me play on that word, safe, right? So yes. let's, I yeah. think it's really helpful for for us and for listeners to think about this through kind of Maslow's perspective, right? And we can think of, you know, we have a safety motivation and a growth motivation. And oftentimes we can get hyper fixated in securing our sense of safety, right? So our sense of physical safety, but also a sense of self-esteem. And, and, you know, part of that is when we're coming from a place of deficiency motivation, what Maslow called the D realm, is that everything becomes either a way to secure, secure, or, yeah, to secure a sense of security yeah. or as a, as, as a threat to it. Right. And so yeah. we live in this really small world of just trying to you know, create a sense of, yeah, survive and create this sense mm. of security for our identity. But, you know, for high performers, where the shift ultimately comes, where they get to fulfill their full reaches of their potential and really leave that impact in the world is when they transcend those security base level needs, which takes, you know, a sense of surrender, a sense of acceptance, a sense mm -hmm. of will willingness to experience the fears of being vulnerable. And then we get to attach and fulfill needs of adventure, of exploration, of love, yeah. of purpose and self-actualization. Yeah. And, and that is a state, what Amazon called the B realm, the being realm. The B so realm, it really realm, is yeah. kind of, yeah, really. I like that. Yeah, the D realm and B realm, right? So the B realm is where you want to be. So, like, I'm loving this sprint. So I think it's a brilliant um, conversation to have. I think it's super relevant. Always is relevant. 
in every aspect of life, no matter where you are in life. But the question I have is, I, I think we're, you know, actually at times I struggle myself, right? And, uh, you know, I just from the world I'm in, in the high performance world, you know, I can vouch that a lot of other people struggle as well, Brent, is that, you know, they want to be their best to driving towards something. There's a, there's a, there's a goal that they're seeking to, to achieve, you know, something really powerful and meaningful. And, you know, they get, they get kind of caught up in, in, I suppose, the outcome and the journey towards the outcome. And it's, you know, how, I suppose, the, how do you, how do you, how do you still make, how, like, I suppose the question is, it's very simple, right? So this is the question. In the high performance world, we're really striving towards being your best and achieving something really meaningful. How can you run that, run that journey, but also be, be amongst all of that and not get attached to the outcome if it goes wrong, if it doesn't, you know, because, you know, yourself, if you are on a journey of high performance and you are, you do have a target or a really, really, really transformational goal that you're working towards. There's going to be milestones. You're going to have a scoreboard set up to know if you're on the right track. So you're going to be constantly reminded if if you're moving in the right direction or not. So it's hard. Like, how do you switch? Or like, how do you not get immersed in that world and just be, you know, just just be and just be 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 present. Be, you know, and all of those things. I suppose that'll be quite you know because I think the question is definitely one we've already explored. But when I just unpack it a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I have pictures of Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan behind yeah. me, and when we think about people who are higher achievers and who are obsessed about their craft, I think those are some, some really two great examples. But then I also have like this mask of samsara and like the God of, of death. And, and uh, so oh, it's a funny cool. con- yeah, it's kind of a funny contrast here that maybe kind of can articulate a perspective that I've learned. And I think everyone will have their own, but I like the way that Flow Research Collective framed it about learning how to live like a lion. And when we're in the context of sport or business, you know, we're fully on. You know, that is that is everything. Where there's we eliminate all other uh, distractions. We we attack, right? We're yeah, we're the lion. Job. But then when when we step off the field, when we step out of the office, we leave it all there. And now it's time to simply be right to mm-hmm. shift from that doing to being. And, and that's that time for rest and recovery and, you know, to smell the roses, to smell the roses the cat down the road yeah. and, and, and just fully be present. So I think it, there's a, again, it's what is functional in the current context. And so when you're in sport, when you're in practice, you know, that obsessiveness, that perfectionist, it is functional. It, it helps us develop and yeah. grow. But now as we shift and now we're with family, right? And we're with our kids or with whomever, what's the most appropriate way of being now? And, and I think yeah, that yeah. living like a lion is a nice, a nice analogy. Um, yeah. So I don't, I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. sure if that answers your question. No, you're hundred percent. Like that's the, like, I suppose, like, again, in, in the world, like my work, right. And what I do, I work like you're working with leaders that are at a very senior level VPs and, um, really senior leaders and you know you, you'd find a lot of perfectionists I suppose in that in that world and they're really hooked to, to the outcome I suppose and it's kind of I suppose that that I suppose learning to live like a lion and from being true to flow research collective training and high flow coaching you brought back that memory because it was something that really struck me and I think it's super powerful in that um, you look at lions and how they live they're ferocious um, when they're in pursuit of something but when they're not you know they're the most calm, quiet, silent. You know, and that, that's something pretty. Um, there's a lot of learnings in that, and 
yeah, I think that's a really good um a good metaphor there, Brent. And yeah, fair play for putting that in. And and I'd say, yeah, I, I agree with Stephen. And I'd say the one other thing that I would just highlight is a nice kind of framework for people to think about around making sure that they're hitting all their needs and and, and able to flourish is that model perma, right? So yeah, am I getting yeah. positive? Am I getting positive emotions? Am I engaged? And, and this is a big one. Am I nurturing deep relationships, which I'm going to come back to? Am I finding a sense of meaning and achievement? And I, I think that if, you know, all of the listeners here ask themselves, what's been the most important thing in their life? What's brought them the most joy, the most opportunities personally and professionally, it often will come down to the relationships that, yeah. that they have. And, and so that is, I, in my experience, the one area that really gets um, impacted by really high achieving individuals striving towards their goal is that they don't nurture that sense of community. And yeah. we know that when we feel a sense of deep connection with others, and I'm not talking about just a sense of acceptance. I'm, I'm talking also like deep intimacy, like, you know, vulnerably sharing and, and having open conversations yeah. with, with the people that you love. Yeah. It gives us a sense of courage and bravery, right? It really nourishes our nervous system and allows us to then take bigger goal, bigger risks yeah. and take on bigger challenges. Big so that's, that's one a- a- avenue it also highlights. Yeah. Cause like, you know, everything ties back to um, like, there's a science, behind everything right you know when you do have that strong connection and when you do have you know authentic and vulnerable conversations like you're stepping outside your comfort zone you're you're going into the stretch zone but like also within your system you're releasing all of those um chemicals that will you know give you a kind of a significant platform to to do it again because those 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 you're going to get after that 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 sense of i've achieved something right and that's it's it's an achievement in itself to to be that connected so um There's a lot exactly. in that, Brent. Yeah, there's there's a lot in that. And I think the perfectionist piece I want to just circle back to is that like to do an exceptional job, you're gonna to have to work hard and, and do 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 a great job. And it's not about okay, I can't be perfectionist anymore. Of course you can still be a perfectionist, but not in everything. In something that requires it to do a great <laughs> job. Being a perfectionist is a great thing, you need to do a great job. But it doesn't need to mean you need to be a perfectionist about, you know something very so you know anything else that doesn't require that requires just for you to be yourself and you know just to be because i think yeah exactly yeah so when that rule of perfectionist is being functional when it's not and i you know i think this comes to a bigger question is is how do we have it all in life right how does that entrepreneur how's that executive how's that athlete have it all and you know in the work that i do it's figuring out exactly as we've mentioned what are my values, what behaviors will bring me towards those values. And then to the best that we can, eliminating everything else. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah, so that yeah. you, you know, it's 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 so much of high performance is about elimination, simplification, automating things so that you just know that you're on the right path. You know, and and so that would be kind of my encouragement that for those that are trying to find balance and trying to have it all is to get really clear on what do I care about and freakishly continually eliminate and assess am yeah. i moving towards those or is there more things i need to you know delegate or, or get out of my, my path right yeah i love that i love the i love the values i suppose the, what, what do you stand for and and what are the behaviors that will bring that to life you know that, that that's really powerful because 
that's everything that will that will lead to so much positive impact for your life but for those around you if you can really be intentional about that and I also want to highlight the, the element of or a piece around simplification elimination saying no you know when you say when you say yes to something what do you say no to when you say no to something actually what do you say yes to right so it's just that simplification because you can take on so much but Coming back to the values piece, Brent, how, do you, how does someone understand their values? How does someone understand what they stand for? How does someone understand the core of their character so that they can then begin to express themselves from that place, which is the behaviours? Yeah. I think an, an interesting exercise that, that I do with clients sometimes is called the tombstone exercise. So imagine we have two tombstones and the tombstone on the left you could write all the things you want to avoid in your life. So I want to avoid embarrassment. I want to avoid failure. I want to avoid, you know, suffering, whatever it might be. It's like, you know, here lies Brent and he avoided suffering, embarrassment, blah, blah, blah. And when we look at that, it's like, well, that's not very exciting. You know, that's <laughs> not really a life well lived. And so the opposite would be like, what, you know, what would be a life that, if I were a fly on the wall at, at my funeral or celebration of life, like what would people say about me that would, you know, be most meaningful. So, you know, writing out like this kind of eulogy is a great way to get clear on like, what do I actually care about? Thinking what at the end of the day, do I hope people kind of yeah. remember me for, and then writing, you know, that second tombstone on the right, that really just articulates, you know, a few of those, ways of being that that were important and and so i think the eulogy is a great example um i also think that looking at the things that we naturally do that bring us joy and thinking about how we can kind of recreate that sense in our everyday life is is a great way to figure out what what do we value it's you know we typically value things that kind of utilize our unique uh, character or personality, uh, you know, helps help us kind of utilize our strengths mm. as well. So um, my go-to is usually the eulogy exercise. Um, so I would I'd leave it at that. And again, just the contrast, because we've been talking about kind of being rule governed, governed by these unconscious rules, and then being value driven. And so that tombstone exercise really helps people figure out, okay, what would a, a, a rule-governed life look like? Okay, I'm avoiding this, this, this. What would a value-driven life be? Okay, I'm moving towards this, this, mm. and that. And, and so I, I think that's a really, really helpful way and uh, to get clear. Yeah, so what are you moving towards? And what, like, so does the avoidance piece and moving, what are you avoiding? What are you moving towards is something very, um, very interesting, right? And I suppose just in terms of what are you avoiding, Brent, um, Question I have again on that, or something I want to just stay here in a moment for, because mm-hmm. a lot of hype, a lot, a lot of people have achieved so much success in life. Are they, are they avoiding something? You know, kind of, you know, are they running from something? And again, if you're in a position where you like, you know, achieve massive success, or you're really focused and want to achieve massive success, is there anything in in there, Brent, or that comes to you in terms of just? reminding that person or reminding themselves about why or what's your experience like what they're giving you work with so many high performers you know what what's what's been your experience about what it is that drives them and why they do what they do in in a healthy way versus actually not 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 so much healthy way yeah 
So um, this is an expression actually my father told me because uh, I was talking to him. You know, he's a guy that he comes from very kind of challenging background, very poor. His mother committed suicide, uh, all these things. Uh, a lot of it kind of challenges his upbringing. And um, he ended up having quite a successful career in his life. And um, he said, I said, you know what, tell me about like, how do you think about this drive to kind of prove people wrong? Like to kind of, you know, prove people thought you were, you know, of a lower class. So you you know, you weren't good enough to marry my mm. mom, uh, mm. that you couldn't succeed because you didn't, you know, graduate high school, all these different things. And he says, oh, yeah, I guess you could call it like the fuck you. Let me show you. <laughs> like the fuck you. Let me show who I am attitude. Right. There's a that piece works of that, yeah. Really well, yeah, there's, you know, that that drives us. Right. That sense to prove <laughs> who, who we can be and, and what we can achieve. And certainly Kobe, Jordan, all these people, they, they use that kind of that dark yeah. side to us. Uh, of ourselves um but that you know that worked for uh you know Kobe on the court but I imagine him as a, as a father with his daughters that maybe that rule wasn't as as functional right and, and so mm. it's it, it, again it always comes down uh, my belief is to understanding what is functional right now is this rule still going to work and the challenges we often get caught in just living out the same rule this same way will work because it's worked in all these other situations but you know as we look at maybe the later stages of our life that's that same drive to prove ourselves uh to you know prove other people wrong whatever it might be might not fulfill some of those higher level needs of transcendence of a, a sense of kind of of love uh it's kind of hard to prove people how much we love you know i don't know how healthy that might be so <laughs> that would be kind of yeah my encouragement like to use that drive that sense of proving oneself and then just again to feel a sense of wholeness a sense of completeness there's there's often a sense of transcending the self right it's not a sense of proving the self but almost of letting go and, and i tend to think about it and um from the a cultural perspective of shifting from like it being an individualist and mm-hmm. to our later times in life to being more of a collectivist and, and how do we maintain harmony amongst our social network and our family and our you know collective versus just kind of actualize our own, our own self. Right. Yeah, I yeah. think that yeah. it, it's a path that can lead to a lot of achievement, but how connected are we? And again, as we've spoken about, that's really what, often matters the most is as we look yeah. back on life and it, and it ties ties us back brent to where we've ultimately all came from which is the tribe you know true evolution and, and survival and just being being our best and all of that just comes back to being in a community where you're valued and you bring value and you're connected and your survival is dependent upon each other and and you live in harmony and you know and you go to war together and you you live together and you celebrate together and you sing and dance together, I suppose. And that's probably something we've moved more and more and more and more away from as, um, as we move further away from actually the, you know, those early days of, of life. Like, so I do see that as a huge yeah. challenge in life at the moment, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think you're going to like this point. So when we think of evolutionary psychology and biology, if we're thinking about, let's say a group of 10 people, one person can be selfish and become the best in that group, kind of actualize in the group and be yeah. the superstar, the, the MVP, whatnot. Mm-hmm. But if we look at another group 
And this group is kind of more altruistic. They're more kind of looking out for the best interests yeah. of other people. This group will always beat out the group that has that one Michael Jordan or whatnot. Yeah. So the altruistic group will beat out yeah. a competitive group. And so that's something that we can also think about is like, yes, we might be striving or being the best in our organization, but is this going to mean we're the best compared to our competitors? <laughs> yeah, Brendan, here's the, here's the question, right? So like I really resonate with that and I've seen that actually play a lot of, a lot of times in my journey through life in various teams and always it was always always the best experience and the most joy in my life has always been involved in teams that have that altruism and that connectedness, that support, that that compassion for each other, you know, that relationship focus, compassion, but courage, you know, you know, that fierceness as well that goes with it. Like, and that I think is brilliant. But like when I when you when you kind of focus in on that a little bit, right? And it's kind of uh it, like there's an element of, like there was an element of selfishness within each person because they knew that they had to be at their best to be able to then, you know, support others around them. You know, so it's kind of like they had to sacrifice a lot to be at their best so that they could then, within that team environment, be able to support, you know, with compassion and challenge for each other. So it's just kind of how do you how do you play on that then or how does that kind of come into everyday life where, you know, when you're stepping into something that you're doing, no matter what it is, you better show up and you better show up well so that you can do it and do it well. And as a result of that, then others will benefit positively from that. But where do you draw the line between, you know, doing that, overdoing that, or kind of underdoing that? It's kind of just that there's there is that element of selfishness. That's um, even yeah. when I spoke, I spoke with um, who do I speak with? Damien Brown, my, one of the first podcasts that I did, Brent, and he said that one of the biggest challenges for him, come, like leaving the sport. I suppose he was a professional rugby player, leaving rugby, like coming in. I suppose, you know, looking for you know, different, like I suppose, an everyday kind of a job or whatever, right? I suppose, or coming, coming into that world was the selfishness that he learned that he needed to adopt to be at his best to play professional rugby, that he had to change his ways or kind of that neural pathway, that habit that he developed had to significantly change in, in other areas of his life and that was the biggest challenge. So again, just another kind of frame to the question or to the, yeah. to the topic yeah, of conversation, yeah. yeah. Yeah, how do we honour self-determination while also what's best for the group, right? And I think it's very, very challenging. And, uh, you know, for whatever reason, that example of the, when you're in the airplane and the, the masks come down, you want to put your mask on first. Yeah. Uh, so Chick sent me high, the author, as you know, of flow theory, he talked about how growth and evolution is a constant process of individuating uh, and then integrating. Right. So I think it's a it's a it's like a spiral up where we have to kind of do what's in our best interest, you know, self-care, actualize our strengths and then say, how, how can we bring this back to help the group? Right. Integrate in the group and then go back out. And yeah, then I love that, what, what, yeah. you know, and, and just like this constant upward, upward spiral mm. is, is kind of the ideal. Um, ultimately, uh, it's cha- it's a challenge. Right. And I think oftentimes we get caught up in you know, being too individualistic or maybe socially loafing and letting other people lead when we could kind of take a, a step yeah. forward. Uh, and so in the in the workplace, I often like to create uh, 
help teams create cultures where everyone's kind of supporting and challenging everyone to be involved, right? How do we create a, a courageous culture where yeah. everyone's speaking, speaking up, where everyone's willing to take on experiments to add new products or ideas and not just having one kind of leader kind of guiding the ship. I think that that approach is really bankrupt and yeah. learning how to create self-managing teams is, is one way where I think we can kind of, combat uh, both uh, becoming too individualistic and then too kind of socially uh, kind of uh, what's the word I'm looking for here Um, becoming or or kind of downgrading too collectivist yeah too collectivist like collectivism is obviously like a dark side too right if you're too collect too much of a collectivist society you you're you're not self-determined you're you're in groupthink you're in a cult right yeah Mm. Yeah. So yeah, look, I, and I love that in that that kind of upward spiral of you know on a journey of already pursued, seeking, improving, stretch zone, challenging, bringing it right back to the group. Then right, and if everybody's in that upward spiral, you can imagine the the journey of an upward spiral that will happen. And if you know yeah. at times when you need to, like when you're not at, when, when something happens where you're kind of sidelined or not at, not not able to continue that journey, that that group will pick you up mm-hmm. and bring you on that so so you can visualize that right. i suppose in a way and i think um yeah. there was one other point like that. yeah there was one other point that was going to bring in their rent it was about the self-managing teams piece but the yeah i suppose look when it comes to teams there's always there was a piece of research done by google brent and that you they were looking at their best teams and their most outstanding teams and you know it's kind of there was two things really there was there was a couple of things that, that came out with it um you know that they did that other teams even the good teams didn't do right obviously the the, the mediocre teams and below obviously we're, we're not doing this but the two aspects of it were conversation turn taking so if there were six people on six people on a team and they convened when they came together they all spoke one sixth of the time so everybody had equal voice which was the first one so again it kind of brings to play that that piece around you know everybody you know that altruistic approach that everybody is actually equal and everyone's hurt, everyone's voice is just equally as valuable and then on the flip side of that, that they were actually listened to and there was actions taken arising out of what people would have shared rather than just giving people airtime, right? So it was actually, there was something done about it. Mm-hmm. And then another kind of piece of insight that kind of just is a little bit aligned to that, but it's from a different um, it's from a different background. It's not from the Google study. Um, when the best performing teams in the world are are convening out together, when they're, when they're in that conversation together, two thirds of the time they're, they're on a task that's what they talk about. One, but a whole one third of the time, they're not talking about anything to do with the work or the product, or whatever it is that requires them to come together as a team. They're talking about life, they're connecting, they're expressing with each other, they're building that relationship, they're building that culture through just being themselves, they're being authentic. So you know, the best teams in the world actually, you could say, actually spend only like two thirds of their time actually doing the work, and one third of the time you could say it's wasted. But it's not. It's it's building that ability to, to trust, to challenge, and um, all of that. So it's very interesting insights. And, and, and yeah, and to build off that, you know, from a kind of a neural neuroscience perspective, what we're talking about when teams are performing at their best, they're experiencing what's called interpersonal synchrony. You know, there this is a unique brain state, a shared mm-hmm. brain state that occurs when teams are optimally collaborating and it's you know synchrony happens on emotional level and a cognitive level, on a physical level, and that's when the team really becomes 
you know, when the ego is merged together and they become greater than the sum of their parts is when there is that sense of connection, a sense of belonging. And, and, and that sense helps the egos kind of dissolve and, and people come together. And mm. literally there's a brain state called the phi complex, which only gets activated when a team is optimally collaborating in this exact way. And so I love that. It's so true. Yeah. You know, the, the communication, so everyone's equally valued, the sense of belonging that's connected kind of creates that sense of, you know, we are one, right? And, and we how are beautiful one. is that? It's, it's, you know, flow, yeah. flow state, we haven't talked too much about it, but it's a, it's a lot of fun and it, and, it, and it leads to actualization, but flow as a team is, is even funner. Oh, uh, stop. Like, that's the thing, Brent, I suppose. Look, I'm, really, I'm good here now for another um, 15 minutes, Brent, right? I think we should definitely... Uh, for this 15 minutes is yeah. talk about flow because that's something that we are okay. definitely shared in our passions and our work I suppose big time so like being involved in a team where we are all one isn't that, a, isn't that amazing right and why not why can why can you not do that right why can't that not happen for you and your team so like the thing about it is Brenton you know something I've heard you reference quite a lot is solving the mental health crisis through flow state right and obviously within the workplace huge a huge um, opportunity and, and space for that. Can you tell me more about that? Just that sentence. Yeah. So when we look at the way that we're working, it's it's a crisis. You know, it, it's really like a full-blown disaster. If, if we look at mental health issues in the workplace, it's, you know, including and specifically I'm, I'm going to target burnout. It's right. costing the global economy trillion, over a trillion dollars every year in lost productivity. And that's not to add on uh, skyrocketing, skyrocketing healthcare uh, costs, uh, lost innovation, turnover. And so yeah. I think it's safe to say that the way that we're working is not working because so much of the population is, is burnt out. Mm. This kind of never, never stopping hamster wheel of staying kind of constantly always on because we have our cell phones because there's always tasks because we're not living like a lion it's throwing our nervous systems into burnout and it's not only that things are because we're not taking kind of that internal locus of control and living like a lion but it's also because industry itself is so volatile right now it's so unpredictable things are always changing so it's again understandable that our nervous systems are in this kind of constant state of fight or flight and yeah. hyper hyper vigilant and so i believe and this is a vision that maslow had that institutions the workplace has a much greater uh, opportunity to create a flourishing society a mentally healthy society than any other institution in the world because we all work we all spend so much time at work yeah so yeah. You know, through learning how to find individual flow and, and team flow in the workplace, I believe that we can kind of cure and prevent burnout and yeah. lead to those kind of fulfillment of those higher level needs. Yeah. Because if yeah. you think about burnout, right, burnout is is cortisol, it's it's beta brain waves, it's hypervigilance, it's agitation. And yep. uh, whereas flow state is almost like the opposite of that. You're getting such a powerful neurochemistry of reward, of pleasure, of things that make us intrinsically motivated to stay engaged in the task, which is quite the opposite from burnout, where we're emotionally exhausted, where we're cynical, when we lose self-confidence. Mm. So I, I think that we have this opportunity, and it's kind of a challenge to everyone that's listening here, to create high-flow workplaces in order to 
yeah, to solve this war crisis and in doing so, hopefully make a huge dent in the mental health crisis as well. Yeah, and I, and I just, again, simple terms here, Brent, is that like by giving people a platform to, you know, be in a position where they can be the most productive, most engaged, most with most enjoyment, most connected, right? Um, obviously, of course, the byproduct of that is the organization objectives and performance will be, you know, will be will be exceeded when you've got that engaged and, and balanced workforce, right? So it's kind of, you know, it's it's kind of like so much, it's, it's, there's so much goodness to it that it's, it's, it's kind of interesting why it's still not really worldwide within organizations, you know, and kind of really seen as such um such a commodity that we need to bring in because, you know, taking care of your people is such a huge thing and by giving people, you know, people who want to come into work, right? Because, you, you know, even if you took a percentage of how many people actually want to come into work, you know, and to do the job they do, I would say the percentages would be frightening. So I think, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah, I don't know, you know, what's your perspective there, Brent, about bridging that gap from, you know, that, that remote number you mean, I think it was in the trillions of, Product loss, production losses, and the mental health crisis, and where it's at. To that's where we're now, ultimately, to where we want to be. Like bridging that gap. What, like, what's the what's your kind of thoughts on that, Brent? Mm-hmm. Well, it's uh, so hard to even predict now with with the way that technology is going to be revolutionizing almost every industry, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Like some of these jobs, you know, I naturally was going to go to. Oh, it's understandable. Some people don't want to be aren't as excited about their their roles right and, and i'm super privileged and i think you, you know you would say you are too with yeah. the jobs that we have right we get to move towards what we're curious about passionate about where there's a sense of purpose and making a difference and so i'm very fortunate and i want to be mindful of those people who maybe don't have that that kind of uh th- those type of roles and yeah. how do you transform even that type of role in something that can create a sense of flow and that's that's really the the benefit of flow is that you one can experience it in any task that they do if they set up the right conditions right so if we have a clear goal we get immediate relevant feedback and we feel it's within our kind of our challenge skill balance so it's a, a challenge that's slightly beyond our skill level, not too beyond our skill level, not too low. So we're bored or we're anxious and that yeah. kind of staying in that flow channel. Like if, if someone even on an assembly line worker gets, gets to experience some flow there, it becomes intrinsically rewarding. It becomes yeah. something that they'll do just for the sake of doing it's it. It's enjoyable, but, right? Uh, no matter what it is, if you do yeah, it well, it's enjoyable, right? If you do something it, good, it, you enjoy it no matter what it is. So it's, you can definitely, you're still, and it comes back to that internal locus of control and that kind of rule governed or external locus of control. Yeah. You're all, it is always, you've always an element of control within yourself to, um, to do a good job and whatever you're doing. And as a result of that, you mentioned the kind of Norse, the neurological and the physiological response that will come into play that your intrinsic motivation, all of that ramps up. So, um, but, but, yeah. you know, but to add to it, you know, when, when, People get burnt out when, yes, when they're overworked, but also when they're, they're in roles that conflict with their values, when they feel like they don't have a sense of control, when there's kind of a community breakdown. And those things, you know, no matter what the organization is, we can give employees and 
and our teammates an opportunity to have some sort of sense of control in the tasks that they do, the way that they do them. We can always increase sense of communi- communication and sense of kind of bonding. Mm. And we can make sure that, you know, we're moving towards their values, even if it's not in the product or the service we're providing, but in the way that we're providing it or building that product, yeah. right? I think a lot of work can be done, not on kind of what's being built, but on how we do it, on how we communicate. And you can create, you know, uh, a team that's getting into flow together, doing something that might not have any objectable kind of, sorry, uh, like external big need in the product they're they're building, but the way that they're doing it's so rewarding that they're finding flow. Absolutely, yeah. And that one third, as I mentioned earlier at that time, that those really, really outstanding teams come together, it's not actually anything to do with work, you know, so... That's a huge um, percentage of time that you can, if you, you find flow in there, it'll definitely correlate back to the two thirds, right? And you can bring that flow across. So, so Brenda, if I'm an individual and I'm listening in and I'm like, okay, I want to bring flow into my life, you know, and I know the kind of habits and routines are a huge part of it and set, setting yourself up to bring flow in, I suppose. What are some of the things they can do to set themselves up out of the gate? You know, just simple things that they can start to put into play for themselves. Yeah, really, really simple things. I would go... Uh, to some of the basics. So when you think about flow, it's essentially learning to have your nervous system work for you, not against you. It's kind of going from a state of burnout or chaos to a sense of order. So how can we bring order to our day-to-day life? Some simple strategies. First, set up you know one day a week where you're spending an hour or so as what we'd call like a strategy session. Kind of plan out your week. Get clear on what are my top priorities for the week you know, structure them into your into your calendar, learn to kind of calendar worship. So everything's kind of mapped out for you. Mm-hmm. So you're not storing it in your brain. You're using your brain just for creativity, innovation, decision-making. Mm-hmm. So first build in the habit of a strategy session. I can't underemphasize how important it is separating strategy from execution. So many of us, you know, and me, myself, all of us still to some degree every day, we shift from strategy to execution, yeah. strategy to execution. Imagine if you did all your strategy and you just went through the week and just executed on the plan, and then you could reassess your strategy at the start of the next week. So yeah. a strategy session. The next is like a, a daily power down ritual. So some, you know, at the end of your work day where you're reflecting on how accurate was the, the work that I did today, day. That hit my priorities? Where did I get distracted? And then kind of, again, like the strategy session, setting up what are my to-dos for the next day, getting as clear as possible on that. So those are two really basic things. And then I would add into this. So you have the strategy, you know now what you want to do. Now, how do we prime our nervous system so that we're getting flow? Firstly, it's identifying what is your high flow activity and making sure you're prioritizing it outside of work. So whether it's skiing, whether it's sport, whether it's community, yeah. church, whatever whatever it is, make sure you prioritize your high flow activities so you're getting that powerful, intrinsic, motivating neuro cocktail flow yeah. state so yeah. that it can help prevent burnout. And that's the flow and, state, Brent, as well. Like that, that's something that you do that just drops you into a flow state where you're completely present. So obviously for me, I play hurling, and when I go training or when I play a game, nothing else matters only in that moment in time so that's my flow activity as such and again why it's probably a lot of, why it's very hard for people for sport players to retire and stuff like that because that flow activity is gone and that's where it completely 
most alive, most present. So for you with skiing, yeah, Brent, yeah. or something like that, right? Basketball. Sure. Yeah. Or other people, you know, could be could be something else. It could be simply even going for a walk. But you got to respect, you got to look at what you're doing right now and what's something you're most enjoying. I think that's probably the flow activity, I would say, Brent, because that's probably something where people might get conflicted with. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. So high flow activity is, you can think about, let's use the example of a sport, and then we'll talk about how you can create it at work as well. So flow happens when we step into high flow context and, and sport is a good example because when you step over the out of bounds and into the playing field, let's say in soccer, now there's a clear goal. There's tons of feedback to how well you're doing and the challenge can be quite, yeah, yeah. Scoreboard. And there's the challenge is quite high. So, you know, we, we find flow when we enter high flow context. So sports, a good example, driving is a good example art, gardening, all these things. And, and so this is what you want to kind of think about to prioritize outside of work, but also how to bring bring that mentality into work. So how do you create like a high flow context? Let's say for an individual working, it's, you know, when you step into your desk or your office area, this is, you, you have your goals clear. This is all that you're doing here. You build mm. in feedback mechanisms, whether you're doing like a Pomodoro method where you're taking mm. quick breaks and assessing, you're staying in that kind of challenge skills sweet spot by making sure you're moving towards what your strengths are, what you're good at. And so again, this is kind of, we want to prioritize a high flow activity outside of work. And then we want to learn how to kind of create high flow context in work as well, where we're yeah. essentially just able to do deep work, right? Where we're yeah. able to eliminate distractions and, and and be fully there like we are when we're playing soccer, right? Yeah, and it's the same as like, that's the, like when you think about it, it's very similar for a team. So you want to like, again, the soccer team or the, the hurling team, right? You go to just like, you come into a, like a strategic leadership team in an organization or any work team, their goals, transformational goal that's really challenging that requires people to, you know, step, step up their game. Maybe they're doing it together. And there's plenty of feedback through a scoreboard mechanism you set up, set up whether it's agile or visual management. So there's, you know, there's there's intentional ways about giving yourself a platform to step into flow and enjoy it for what it is individually and a team, you know? Absolutely. And I would say the easiest way to find flow, if you're, you know, heading into your week or heading into your work day or on your lunch break is going for a 20 minute walk, right? There's exercise induced flow is a real thing exercise induced mm. transient hypofrontality it's called and if you're able to prime yourself by getting into flow before you go into the office or before you step onto the field you're going to accelerate your ability to learn to be productive to find a sense of joy in what you're doing and so really being intentional about priming yourself with flow before you go into the workplace is one hell of a good way to boost your performance as well Brent, I think we're going to have to do part two. <laughs> Cause yeah, flow, yeah, I'd love to. Literally, we literally <laughs> only started talking about flow. Like that flow is what connected us both and we only spoke about it for, I think it all, it's absolutely all connected for sure, but we really only were intentional about it. We'll do a part two, sure. 100%. And I, it was sure. a brilliant conversation, Brent. But like to, to, to come to a close, is there anything, Brent, you'd like to share or anything we didn't speak about a question that I should have asked or anything that you've got up and coming that you want to, you want to share that for people and then again where could I find you and because I think uh, there'll definitely be a lot of people um, very curious about you and you know hopefully wanting to reach out and maybe um, connect so well thank you Stephen uh, thanks for the opportunity to be uh, on, on your podcast and I would 
I'm going to go to something right at the root of what I was taught when I was living in those Buddhist monasteries, which was every time we'd start a meditation, we would contemplate just how precious life is, right? Like how, mm. as a nun, my nun would say, living people die before dying people every day. Living people like all of us listening to this, you know, we could pass before someone in the hospital with stage four cancer or whatnot. So just, I want to just kind of really hit on that sense of gratitude for life mm. and that sense yeah. of urgency then to use it to its fullest. And mm. if I was to say one, one activity that I would encourage folks to kind of really integrate into life to find more flow and well-being it, it would be a, a self-imagery practice so before you can you know add on new goals develop new habits you know positively speak to yourself i think it's really important to first have an image of ourselves as being that high performer as being that great father as being mm. that leader and so spending some time at very simple practices closing your eyes doing a body scan to relax for a minute Thinking back to a time in your life where you achieved something could be big or small, but connect to those feelings and those emotions of success. And then visualize seeing yourself perform whatever that, that role is, whatever that task is that's important to you. So again, being that athlete, being that uh, leader, that CEO, see yourself constantly. Put that image into your mind so that you know you can allow your, your intrinsic uh, success mechanism, right? We, I'm a humanistic psychologist. I believe that if we just remove the barriers, we will actualize our potentials. Yeah. But first we need to really just have that image. So that would be yeah, one other thing I, I just, we haven't hit is like, you know, I think the most important, the foundation of, of any growth is that belief in ourselves. And, and imagery is a powerful practice with a lot of research behind it. And um, so I'll say that, and yeah, you can, folks can learn more about me and my work. Uh, helping leaders and teams find flow at uh, my website, simply brenthogarth.com. And uh, I'll be having some deep work retreats coming out in the new year. And sweet. I'm excited about those kind of sweet, yeah, sweet. Some opportunities yeah, for teams to kind of get out of the, the, the rut and uh, just have focus week on resting and doing deep work on their craft. And yeah, looking forward to staying connected with you, Steven. So we'll do a, a part two and, and talk some more about flow and, mm -hmm. uh, Thank you again and, and hope this was a benefit to some of your listeners. It was amazing, Brent. So I was 10 out of 10, man. And what I'd say is that I just want to acknowledge you for coming on and say thanks, but just look, the reason I brought you on is because you're an exceptional person, exceptional character, doing really rare work. You're, you know, you're definitely everything you've mentioned there. You're you're on the journey and, uh, you know, I can only commend you for for being who you are and bringing that, bringing that light, being, being a shining light in, in a world that, that needs it. So um, you definitely are, and no doubt there's plenty of shining lights that are that are around you, and and you've been a leader and catalyst for all of that. So, so brilliant, Brent, to have you on. Congratulations, man. So that's it for another episode of the Live on Bum podcast. I am delighted to be sharing this unfolding experience with you. If you'd like to get in touch with me or the guest, all that information is in the show notes. This podcast is in service to you and your best life. If you want to really enhance your life and become your best version of yourself and, and be on that journey of accelerated development of, as a whole person, we have a program, Discover Your Best, launching on April 17th and did all the details in the show notes. So please feel free to join the program and we can't wait to see you then. Until next time, I'm Stephen McDonald, and this is Live Unbound.